This is Thurman Hayes, pastor of First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia. We want to welcome you to this message from our services at First Baptist. We're a congregation that is seeking to touch lives through the life-changing power of the gospel. I pray that you'll encounter Christ in His power and love even now as you listen. Amen. Let me invite you to open your Bibles to Isaiah 66, the last chapter of Isaiah. It has been such uh, an enriching thing to, to walk through the book of Isaiah with you guys. And I'll tell you, the, the one who's teaching or, or preaching um, <laughs> always gets, <laughs> as, as just, digging, just digging into uh, Isaiah week after week has been uh, an incredible uh, blessing in, in my own life. And I just really appreciate the feedback that so many of you have given, um, that God, is, God has really worked in our lives as a church family as we've walked through this incredible book. And, and today we come to the, the end of that journey with this incredible chapter 66, which really asks the question, final judgment or future joy? This is like a chapter of contrasts, as we'll, we'll see. And so we're going to look at verses 1 through 4. Four, and then we're going to look at the end of the chapter. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things. And so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person. One who is humble submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. One person slaughters an ox, another kills a person. One person sacrifices a lamb, another breaks a dog's neck. One person offers a grain offering, another offers pig's blood. One person offers incense, another praises, praises an idol. All these have chosen their ways and delight in their abhorrent practices. So I will choose their punishment and I will bring on them what they dread because I called and no one answered. I spoke and they did not listen. They did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. Let's pick it back up at verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth which I will make, will remain before me. This is the Lord's declaration. So your offspring and your name will remain. All humanity will come to worship me from one new moon to another and from one Sabbath to another, says the Lord. As they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. So Father, as we dig into this final chapter of Isaiah today, which is filled with such incredible contrast between the glory of the new heaven and earth and the horrors of hell, eternal life and eternal death, Lord, we, we, we pray that you would give us humble hearts, and as we see in verse two, hearts that are, are humble and contrite and that tremble at your word. Lord, as, as we 
as we open your word always, whether it's, whether it's in our quiet time or whether we're listening to a sermon or whenever, whenever we open the scripture, Lord, we, we pray that we would do it with reverent, prayerful, humble hearts that are eager to learn and, and eager, to, eager to obey, eager to trust in your promises, ready to repent, ready to be encouraged or comforted or Lord, whatever it is that you desire to do through your word today. Lord, give us hearts that are ready and receptive. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray, amen. So one of the most famous lines in, in literature is the beginning of Charles Dickens' a novel, A Tale of Two Cities. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. And that certainly applies to kind of what we see here in the final chapter of Isaiah because it is a chapter of contrast. You've got a beautiful description of the new heaven and earth, but, but yet you've got this description of, of hell as well. It is light and darkness. It's a chapter of contrast, and it's a chapter that kind of ends with an open-ended question. Final judgment or future joy? You know, and it leaves, us in, it leaves it in the lap of the readers to answer that. What will your final destiny be? So what do, we, what do we see here? It begins with a contrast between true worship and false worship. He begins with true worship in verses one and two. Let's look together at verses one and two. This is what the Lord says. Heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? And where would my resting place be? My hand made all these things. And so they all came into being. This is the Lord's declaration. I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. Wow. So let's go back here to verse 1. God says, heaven is my throne and earth is my footstool. Where could you possibly build a house for me? Now remember the context of Isaiah because God is promising, the, first of all, he's telling, telling them the exile is coming, but then he is saying there's gonna be restoration after the exile and you're gonna be able to return to Jerusalem and do what? Rebuild the temple. Yet even Solomon, who built the first temple, he said, what about it? First Kings chapter eight and verse 27. Solomon says there, but will God indeed live on earth? Even heaven, the highest heaven cannot contain you, much less this temple that I have built. And so even Solomon, who built the first temple, is saying here, the idea that God, almighty God, could be confined to a building is ludicrous. In fact, the very materials that they used to build the temple, every version of it, it was just stuff that God made. It was all from him. Look at verse two. God says, my hand made all these things. And so they came into 
being. You know, that's a really good word for us too because here in the West, you know, with all of our wealth, I mean, we build our skyscrapers and our big houses and our financial portfolios and, 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 and we, we say, I did this. I did this. No. The scripture says everything that you have comes from God, including the ability to make wealth. Deuteronomy chapter 8 and verses 17 and 18. God says, you may say to yourself, my power and my own ability have gained this wealth for me. But remember that the Lord your God gives you the power to gain wealth, which is why as Christians, we're not to think of ourselves as owners of anything, but as stewards of everything, time, talents, and treasure that God has given to us to manage as stewards in a way that will glorify him. Here's something else that we need to kind of get from this, that, that Israel needed to see and that we need to see. It was not wrong for them to, to, to build the, the, the temples. It was not wrong for these exiles to return to Jerusalem and rebuild the temple. In fact, that was, that was God's will that they do that. Just like there's nothing wrong for us to, to build church buildings today. In fact, it's a, it's a great advantage for the kingdom if a church is able to, to have a building. But, but God knew that then and even now that we can be tempted to think that God is confined to a building or that God can be controlled by the worship that takes place in a, a building. But, but no, our, God is not manipulated. God, God is not manipulated by worship. See, that was a temptation for them to think. They, they could think, you know, we can, we can kind of manipulate and control God through all of our rituals. And, and people can think that today, right? The whole health and wealth gospel is kind of based on that, right? We can kind of manipulate God and, you know, we can get him to do this for us and all that. that the whole idea is kind of, kind of controlling God, manipulating God. Or we can think of our worship. Hey, hey, I've worshiped and I've kind of checked off this block and now God owes me. God is in my debt. No, God is not controlled. He's not manipulated. Neither is he confined. You're not confined, God, by our worship. See, the temptation then and now is, is to think that, you know what? Well, hey, this is God's house. God is here. And so I can go out and I can do whatever I want out there. Because <laughs> this is God's place, right? He's confined here. Nice, safe, tame, God, controlled, confined. Oh no, no. I love in, in The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, the, the conversation that takes place between uh, Mr. Beaver and Susan. Uh, they're talking about Aslan, the, the lion in the story who represents Christ. Mr. Beaver says, Aslan is a lion, the lion, the great lion. Oh, said Susan, I thought he was a man. Is he quite safe? I shall feel rather nervous meeting a lion. Safe, said Mr. Beaver. Who said anything about safe? Of course he isn't safe, but he's good. He's the king. Listen, Aslan is no tame lion, and our God 
is no tame God. He's not confined by our buildings. (laughs) He's not controlled by our worship. He is a holy God. And the only reason that sinners like us can even stand in his presence and not be incinerated is because he's not only holy, but he's loving. And what we've seen in Isaiah is that he gives his only son so that we can be reconciled and so that we can be made sons and daughters, so that we can become his children and be reconciled to him and be forgiven and have new life. It's because Jesus, the suffering servant that we read about, came for us so that we could be reconciled to, to, to the Holy One and know him as, as Father. And that's why at the heart of true worship is the gospel. It's all about Jesus. It's all about his cross. It's all about his resurrection. It's all about the good news about Jesus. True worship lifts up the work of Christ. I took this picture in April of, of 2017. I'd gone to Paris to visit some, some of our workers, some of our, uh, the, our workers that we support that are working with North African peoples in that city. And so this is outside of the Grand Cathedral of, of Notre Dame. And then walking inside, there's a picture from inside. And if your eyes are really good in <laughs> this picture, you can look through and you can see that cross that's shining at the front of the church there at the altar. Well, two, two years, about almost exactly two years after I took that picture, a fire broke out and the, the fire really was centered right above that altar where that cross is. But as firemen entered the building, and you can see it here, the firemen going in and looking through the the smoldering embers, what do you see? That cross is still standing and still shining. And, And even with all of the debris right in front of it, there's that cross still shining. You know, whether worship takes place in a grand cathedral like Notre Dame or in a house, an apartment, with persecuted believers in China or a a, a gathering of African believers underneath an acacia tree or, or, or wherever it is, the heart of worship is the work of Christ, what Christ has done. It's, it's, it's his cross, his shed blood for sinners, his resurrection from the dead. Where true worship takes place, Jesus, And his work and the good news about him is always central. True worship. And we see something else here about the heart of true worship at the end of verse two. God says, I will look favorably on this kind of person, one who is humble, submissive in spirit, and trembles at my word. I I tell you, I I encourage you to memorize the end of, of, of Isaiah 66 too. What kind of a person does God look favorably upon one who is humble, one who is submissive or contrite in spirit, one who trembles at my word? Let's kind of unpack those things. First of all, God looks favorably on on one who is humble. Throughout the scripture, Old Testament and New, we see this principle. God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. Do you want to incur the opposition of God? It's not a good thing. God opposes the proud, but he gives grace to the humble. 
to those who are lowly and contrite in spirit. He dwells with such people. What do we see in chapter 57? Turn back to chapter 57 and verse 15. God's dwelling place. It says, for the high and exalted one who lives forever, whose name is holy, says this, I live in a high and holy place and with the oppressed and lowly in spirit to revive the spirit of the lowly and revive the heart of the oppressed. God looks favorably on, on one who is humble, lowly, poor in spirit, as Jesus put it in the, in the Beatitudes. And then he looks favorably on one who is, uh, who is, who is sub, sub, submissive in spirit or, or contrite. Uh, the word literally is broken. Broken in all the, the right places, not broken in the sense of despair, not broken in the sense of just kind of feeling sorry for yourself because you've made a mess of things, but broken about your sins against God. And then God looks favorably on one who, who trembles at my word. And this doesn't mean that we're terrified of God. We, we know that as believers, we've been reconciled to him. He has adopted us as his beloved children. It's not that we're, you know, we're, we're terrified of our heavenly father. But what it does mean when it says that we tremble at his word, it means that when we get into the scripture, you know, whether we're, we're reading that in our quiet time or whether we're doing like, like we're doing now and opening it in a large group and, um, and, and hearing it expounded, it means that, it means that there, there's a sense of reverence that we should have. There's, there's, a, there's, there's humility. It means that whenever we come to the, the, the God's word, that we do so with, with humble hearts, eager to learn, you know, ready to, to if when we see the promises of God, to trust, to trust in his promises, to, to obey his commands. It means that we come at the scripture reverently and prayerfully and ready to believe, ready to obey. You know, in our evangelical subculture, a lot of times we, this, we can even talk about, we can divide worship services into um, the uh, musical parts and, and, and the preaching parts. We, you even hear sometimes talk about a service being composed of worship and preaching. <laughs> As if listening to a sermon is not worship. It very much is worship. When you open the word of God, wherever you are, it is to be done with a worshipful heart, a prayerful heart, a, a, a heart of, of reverence that's eager to learn and, and, and humbling yourself before God's word and, and just and, and ready, to, ready to trust in the promises that you see there and obey the commands that you see there worshipfully one who trembles at my word that's that's true true worship but we also see something about false worship here in verses three and four one person slaughters an ox another kills a person one person sacrifices a lamb another breaks a dog's neck one person offers a grain offering another offers pig's blood one person offers incense 
another praises an idol. All these have chosen their ways and delight in their abhorrent practices. Now, verse 3 was meant to shock. It, it's, it, was, it sounds shocking even now, but, but it really sounded shocking to ancient Israelites when they, when they read this. Because what Isaiah is doing here is he's contrasting biblical practices of, of worship, Old Testament biblical practices of, of worship with, with, uh, with abhor, things that God abhors. One person slaughters an, an, an ox you know, to be used as a sacrifice. An, another kills a person. Human sacrifice, which God hates and which his law forbids. All human sacrifice, which the pagans did, was abhorrent to God. One person sacrifices a lamb, which again was a biblical practice of worship. And those lambs that were sacrificed in the Old Testament pointed to Jesus, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. He says, one person offered, sacrifices a lamb, another breaks a dog's neck, like God forbids uh, brutality and, and cruelty to, uh, to, 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 to animals here in his law. And so breaking a dog's neck, like that's just the epitome of just kind of like cruel brutality that's like abhorrent to God. One person offers a grain offering. Again, a biblical practice of worship. Another offers pig's blood, which is kind of the ultimate gross thing to Old Testament Jews. One person offers incense, which would be a pleasing aroma to God in worship. Another praises an idol abhorrent to God. And see, the temptation here would have been if you're an ancient Israelite, you, you read things like people, you know, offering human sacrifices and breaking dogs' necks and offering pig's blood and praising idols. And you would think, hey, those things are gross. They're disgusting. We don't do those things. We're the, we're, the, we're the good guys. We're doing all the right stuff. We're doing the right sacrifices, the right rituals. But here's the jaw-dropping moment. Here's the, the punch. God here is saying, you may be doing all the right stuff on the outside, but if your hearts are unclean, then your worship is unclean. Jesus said to the Pharisees, you're like whitewashed tombs. <laughs> you're like shiny on the outside, but inside you're full of death and, and decay. And God is saying here that what I really want from you is not your rituals. What I really want from you is repentance. I want you to address the issues going on in your hearts. That's exactly what David does in, in Psalm 51, that great psalm of confession. David says here in Psalm 51, 16 and 17 to God, you do not want a sacrifice for I would give it. You are not pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifice pleasing to God is a broken spirit. You will not despise a broken and humbled heart, God. Look at verse four. God says, so I will choose their punishment 
and I will bring on them what they dread. Because I called and no one answered. I spoke and they did not listen. They did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. What did they dread? We saw this in the first half of Isaiah. What were they dreading? Exile. But it was going to become a self-fulfilling prophecy. The very thing that they dreaded was going to happen because they refused to repent. They made their choice. And so God says, I will choose. We see that here, right? God says here, so I will choose their punishment. But see, God's choosing here only validates the choice that they've already made. What do you see at the end of the verse? You, they did what was evil in my sight and chose what I did not delight in. So, and so God's choosing of punishment is merely the validation of what they have already chosen. It's the same today. If you wind up in hell, ultimately it will be because you chose it. And that's the final thing that we see here. The choice, eternal life or eternal death. Look at verse 22. For just as the new heavens and the new earth, which I will make, will remain before me. Now we've seen true worship and false worship, but here we see ultimate worship. The new heaven and earth is going to be ultimate worship. It's going to be perfect worship because it's going to be untainted by our sin. It's going to be endless worship because it will remain forever. Here, our worship is always imperfect, right? Because of our fallen nature and our sin. Here, we so often default to ourselves and drift from God into kind of a self-imposed loneliness because we allow our fellowship with God to be broken through our own drifting. And sometimes it's lonely because we lose people that we love in this fallen world. In the new heaven and earth, there's no loneliness. Our, our fellowship with God will be completely unhindered. There will be no drifting from God. There will be no loss of loved ones. In fact, there will be reunion with them. I love what Jonathan Edwards says in his great sermon, Heaven, a World of Love, and so appropriate for Memorial Day weekend. Every gem which death rudely tears away from us here is a glorious jewel forever shining there. Every Christian friend that goes before us from this world is a ransom spirit waiting to welcome us in heaven. There will be the infant of days that we have lost below through grace to be found above. There the Christian father and mother and wife and child and friend with whom we shall renew the holy fellowship of the saints, which was interrupted by death here, but shall be commenced again in the upper sanctuary and then shall never end. There we shall have company with the patriarchs and fathers and saints of the Old and New Testaments and those of whom the world was not worthy, with whom on earth we were only conversant by faith. And there above all, we shall enjoy and dwell with God the Father, 
whom we have loved with all of our hearts on earth and with Jesus Christ, our beloved Savior, who has always been to us the chief among 10,000s and altogether lovely, and with the Holy Ghost, our sanctifier and guide and comforter, and shall be filled with all the fullness of the Godhead forever. Amen. Amen. Look at verse 23. God says, all humanity will come to worship me. What we've seen throughout Isaiah is God's heart for the nations. He talks, you know, all the different passages that we looked at where God says the people of the coast and islands are going to come to me. All, all peoples, every tribe and tongue. That's what he said here in verse 23. All humanity will come and worship me. And the new heaven and earth it is going to be a multicolored mosaic of people praising God because people are going to be won to Christ from every tribe and tongue. That's what Revelation 7 tells us as well. After this I looked and there was a vast multitude from every nation, tribe, people, and language which no one could number standing before the throne and before the Lamb. They were clothed in white robes with palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who is seated on the throne and to the Lamb. All humanity, every tribe and tongue praising the Lord. People from every people group who have come to Christ are going to be there. They're going to be there. So we're not just going to be with saved loved ones that we've known here. We're going to be with like a big family from every tribe and tongue of people who have come to, come to Christ. But Isaiah ends in the final verse, not with a description of heaven, but with a warning about hell. Verse 24, as they leave, they will see the dead bodies of those who have rebelled against me. For their worm will never die, their fire will never go out, and they will be a horror to all humanity. Wow. Now I think, you know, Isaiah here is in this first part of verse 24. He's speaking metaphorically. I, I don't think he's literally saying that we're going to be able to look over from the new heaven and earth and see hell. Because that would be at odds with the, whole, the Bible's whole description of what the new heaven and earth is like. There's going to be no sadness there. And looking over and seeing hell would absolutely make us sad. No, what he's, what he's doing here in this metaphor is pointing to the reality. The reality. There's going to be a new heaven and earth. But if you choose the opposite, that's, re that's real too. Hell is real. And we should not, we can't shrink back. From proclaiming that, Jesus did not shrink back from proclaiming that. In fact, Jesus quotes Isaiah 66, 24. Ray Ortland says this. Does Isaiah's final warning about hell embarrass you? It didn't embarrass Jesus. In Mark 9, 48, he quotes Isaiah 66, 24 to describe hell. Not only is he frank about human suffering in this world, he's frank about human suffering in the next world. 
And this is why our missionaries, like Brian and Gerilyn, are not simply going to do good works and to alleviate human suffering here. They're doing that. Lots of that. Feeding the hungry and sheltering the homeless and clothing the naked and providing medical care and teaching people to read and helping people get education, helping people grow crops and on and on and on. Um, so many works of love and compassion, mercy, which is all right and all biblical to alleviate suffering here in this world, but as they do that, as they are doing all of those things, the, the kind of missionaries that our church supports are also proclaiming the good news of the gospel, winning people to Christ, making disciples who will plant gospel-centered churches because we, we not only care about alleviating human suffering here and now, but, but human suffering forever. We, we, want, we want people to come to know Christ and God uses the works of compassion and mercy to open up the hearts of people to be receptive to the message of Christ because we want to alleviate human suffering here and forever. One final word here about hell. Again, Ray Ortland says this so well. Before we get defensive about Isaiah's uncensored display of eternal worship versus eternal dying, there are two things we need to think about. One, as awful as hell is, we deserve it. If you've never come to realize that you deserve hell, you don't understand yourself. Two, God himself came down into this world and suffered hell out of love for us to save us from our folly. And this was at the heart of Isaiah all the way through this holy God who hates sin and who is utterly separated from anything sinful in love sends his son so that we can be made sons and daughters. And Isaiah tells us that Jesus came as a suffering servant that Jesus suffered on the cross in our place, that Jesus took hell and our sin on himself, on himself, exhausting its power so that you and I can be reconciled to this holy God and forgiven and free and experience new life and abundant life and eternal life. Isaiah tells us about a suffering servant who came for us and it tells us about an anointed conqueror Jesus who is coming again to make all things new let's pray father we thank you so much for this incredible book so majestic in its scope and, and, and deep in the riches of the gospel. And Father, I pray for anyone who's here, anyone within hearing of this message that doesn't know Christ, that Father, you would work in the power of your spirit, Lord, to grant repentance and faith right now. That right now, 
someone who doesn't know you would turn, turn from sin and self, turn from trying to do life their own way apart from you and turn to Jesus and trust him and receive him as Savior and Lord. Trust in the fact that, on the fact that he died for them on that cross and rose from the dead and that he's coming again. And Father, we pray that you would make all of us more eager to go out and to share the beauty of the gospel that we have seen in Isaiah. It's in the name of Jesus that we pray. I hope you've been blessed by this message. Christ is the answer for every need, now and for all eternity. As someone once said, Jesus plus nothing equals everything, and everything minus Jesus equals nothing. Have you trusted in Jesus as your Savior? If not, why not now? His arms are open wide to receive you. It may help to pray a prayer like this. Father, I know that you are holy and that I have sinned and fallen short of your glory. I know that you are a righteous God who must punish sin, but I believe that your son Jesus took my punishment for me, died in my place, and rose from the dead so that I could have eternal life. Right now, I turn to Jesus and trust in his finished work for me. In his name I pray, amen. You know, the Bible says this in John 1:12: to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. And that means that if you've received Christ, God has adopted you as his beloved child, his very own son or daughter. Just imagine it. Almighty God, the Lord of this universe, the one who possesses all authority in heaven and earth is now your loving father and you are his child. You say, I love him. How can I honor God with the rest of my life? Well, when you love someone, you wanna spend time with him. We get to know God through his word, through prayer, and through his people. I would encourage you to pick up a copy of the Bible and begin to read it. Begin to pour out your heart to him in prayer and find a church family where the Bible is preached, where Christ is exalted, and where his love is flowing. If you're local, I want to invite you to the church I pastor, First Baptist Church of Suffolk, Virginia.